0: God called for a turning to him in repentance, but the people chose to celebrate their achievements and rest in their works. They did exactly the opposite of what God wanted. And so he says, surely this iniquity, this bentness, this twisted trust that you have will not be atoned for until you die. And the siege would come, and it would be horrible. Horrible. Well, welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast. My name is Doug Dunbar. I'm the lead pastor at Gospel Chapel. And right now, we're in the start really of year two of the Gospel Project put out by Lifeway Publishing. And that's taking us through the entire Bible and looking at it through the lens of how it, Jesus Christ is revealed in all of Scripture. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scripture concerning himself. And so that's what we're doing in and through the gospel projects, in the weekly sermons, and in our Sunday school classes. Now we would love to connect with you, if you're tuning in uh, and you don't attend uh, Gospel Chapel in person, you can head to our website at gospelchapelgf.com and find out more about Gospel Chapel, what we're about, um, who we are, where we are, and all that other stuff. And if uh, you have a prayer concern, you can fill that out and uh, also sign up for our weekly email that gets sent out on Thursdays. And. Uh, We'd love for you to do that and be encouraged today in God's Word. All right, so in the Gospel Project, we've been looking a lot at, we've been kind of in the historical books for quite a while. We went through the kingship of Solomon, I think back in June, the kingship of David in July, the kingship of uh, Solomon, did I say Solomon first? Saul, David, Solomon in uh, in August, and at the end of Solomon's reign, things divide and you end up with Judah in the south and and uh, Israel in the north. And, and really they're at odds with each other throughout the rest of the history of, of Israel. And into this mix comes men that, that God calls up to speak to Israel, to speak to the kings, to speak to Judah, prophets who come and, and kind of expound what's going on in their midst against the word of God. Uh, One of my seminary prophets kind of jokingly said, but prophets are really, at the end of the day, they're covenant enforcement officers. They're kind of looking at what's going on and saying, well, God said in his word this, and this is what's going on, so let's just put two and two together. And so they do that. And so over the next, we've already kind of been in Isaiah for a bit. We're going to be back in Isaiah again uh, today. And then we're going to be in some of the other prophets over the next uh, month and a half as we look at how God was speaking to a divided nation and a nation under threat and a nation that was basically walking away from God and see what they have to say uh, to Israel then and to us today. Back in October 2nd, we looked at Isaiah chapter 43 to 44 and we discovered the foundations for renewal and rest were rested upon remembering who God is and who we are in relation to him as his people. And from that text, we saw just the amazing mercy and the patience of God to draw us back to himself. And today we're going to explore kind of a necessary counterpoint to God's mercy and patience and that is his justice and severity both with the same intention. The mercy and the patience of God is there to draw us back to himself, but also his justice and severity have that same intention to draw us back to himself. In Romans 11, 12, Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Notice that kindness and severity exist together. And the overarching story of the Bible shows us both sides of God all the time. The story of the Old Testament continually presents God dealing with humanity and human failing, both in severity and kindness, in justice and in mercy. And so Adam and Eve sin, they break covenant with God And justice falls, but mercy reigns and sin won't have the last word. We see this in the flood. The flood comes and justice falls and Noah and his family are saved and mercy reigns and sin will not have the last word. And at the Tower of Babel, built on pride, it becomes a construction ghost town because justice falls, but then Abraham is called through whom God will bless all the scattered nations of the earth and mercy reigns and sin will not have the last word. And as we could go through passage after passage, we notice that God is always actively involved with his people. Even though Adam and Eve get ejected from the garden, God still speaks to them. Even though Cain is plotting murder, God still speaks to him. Even though people make the wrong decisions, God still pursues his people. Israel's history and the history of humanity is founded on God acting against sinfulness. The people of God are formed out of both his mercy and his justice. And we can only appreciate the justice and the mercy of God when we have come to a full and firm grasp on the true nature of our sinfulness and our sin nature, not popular words today. Not a popular topic, even in churches. We love the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. We don't really talk a lot about his severity or his hatred of sin. So what is sin? Wayne Grudeman, his systematic theology says this, sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. In its essence, the contradiction of the excellence of his moral character. It is. Sin is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of God's moral character. It contradicts his holy character, and so he must hate it. Fundamentally, we see sin defined in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity, and everything in the Bible kind of is the outcome and the, the struggle with that. It starts there. We get like two chapters where everything's great, and then it's a mess. And then you get two chapters at the end where it's all great again. But in between is God dealing with sin in severity and in mercy. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve deal with three key questions that are raised. What is true? What is right? And who am I? And every question God had already answered, God had said, when you eat the fruit, you will die. But Satan said, no, you won't. So what is true? God said, here's the boundary. Here's what I I am defining what is right for you. Satan says, hey, define right and wrong for yourself. Take the tree so that you'll know what's right and wrong and you don't have to listen to God anymore. God said, you were created in my image to walk with me in relationship that we may work together for the flourishing of all creation. Satan says, take control of your destiny, chart your own course and make yourself equal with God. When we choose to determine the answers to these questions, what is true, what is right, and who am I, and answer them for ourselves, when we oppose the purposes of God, we stand in the place of the Satan, which is a title in the Old Testament, not a personal name for one person. It's a title. It's always got the definite article attached to it. In Hebrew, that means it's a title, not a name. We put our place in that. We put ourselves in that place when we oppose God's purposes. And that's basically what the word means. It means to oppose, to stand against. That's what the word hasatan, the Satan, means. And God will always act in response to opposition. He will, he would not be a God of justice if he did not. Just imagine if God never acted against sin, what would he be like? What would our world be like? What would life be like if God never judged sin? What hope would we have? Ultimately, without acting against sin, the cross would be meaningless. Justice would have no basis other than on human cultural whim, and God would be unworthy of worship because he would be impotent in the face of opposition. He has to judge sin. So God must act against injustice. He must judge iniquity, the ways in we, that we fall short of his glory, the ways we fight against his purposes, the ways in which we have chosen to define ourselves and our purpose in life apart from him. Now Isaiah chapters 13 to 31 is a very long prophetic poem declaring the justice of God that will come against Israel and Judah and the nations but it is also a long section of worship and a celebration of the mercy of God as he acts in judgment. And three realities come to the forefront that we're going to touch on today. First, the Lord will be vindicated in judging iniquity. Second, the Lord will be praised for judging iniquity. And thirdly, the Lord will be merciful after judging iniquity. So first passage we're going to turn to is Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, and I'm going to read verses 8 to 14. This first point, the Lord will be vindicated in judging iniquity. Hear this. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked upon the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of of the lower pool, you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing of sackcloth and behold, joy and gladness, killing of oxen, slaughtering of sheep, eating of flesh and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Iniquity. God will be vindicated when he judges iniquity. What is iniquity? It's not a word we use that often. The Hebrew word can simply mean a misdeed but also can refer to something that's twist or bent out of shape. In the context of Isaiah 13 to 31, the main misdeed or the bentness of God's people is that they're trusting in political and military alliances with other nations to get them through some pretty tense situations. Repeatedly, Isaiah points out that they're not turning to God. They have a twisted trust. In those first verses in 8 to 11a details all the preparations the people of Jerusalem were making because there was a threat of a siege coming towards them. We're gonna build a wall. We're gonna fix the wall. We're gonna make it better. We're gonna build actually a secondary wall and we've already got the the, the 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 pool of Siloam or or whatever it was and we're gonna make a better uh, pool so that we have water during the siege. We're gonna do everything we can to make sure that we can survive the siege. We looked to the weapons of the forest, saw the breaches of the city and act, but you didn't look to the one who planned it. Notice the verbs for seeing. Very important here. They saw what they could do to save themselves in the situation, but they didn't look to God. They didn't look to him. And God was calling for a turning to him in repentance In that day, the Lord of hosts called for a weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing of sackcloth, but behold, joy and gladness. They fixed the walls, they made the pool, and then they had a party to celebrate everything they did right. We're safe now. Yay, let's party. But you didn't look to God, and it's all going to come crashing down. God called for a turning to him in repentance, but the people chose to celebrate their achievements and rest in their works. They did exactly the opposite of what God wanted. And so he says, surely this iniquity, this bentness, this twisted trust that you have will not be atoned for until you die. And the siege would come, and it would be horrible. The Gospel Project tells us that we have a number of essential doctrines. If you get the uh, daily discipleship guide, um, from, from the back table there, you'll, you'll see this in this chapter on this, that God is just. God establishes for his moral creatures laws and standards that are in accordance with his righteousness and his moral character and will be judged according to, and we will be judged according to those righteous standards. It would be an injustice if God were not to uphold his righteousness for such failure would require God to violate his own righteous character. Since humanity has sinned by failing to live up to God's righteous standards, God has taken it upon himself to make provision by being both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Christ. Romans three twenty five and 26. We usually memorize this Romans 3, you know, the all of sin to fall short of the glory of God and are just, the next verse, which is actually part of the same sentence, and are justified freely by his grace for it is God who is just and the justifier are those who have faith in him. Human strength and pride and ability. This is where the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem were trusting. That's where their hope was fixed. And God says that won't be enough to save you. And it never is. Human strength and pride and ability. And how easy is, it for, is, is that for any of us to fall into? We have our businesses, our jobs, our, our security, our, our finances, our, our savings, our retirement plans, our home ownership, our democratic rights and freedom, and nobody can tell us what to do or how to live. And we say we follow God, but there are ways in which we bend his word to meet our expectations and purposes to support a sense of privilege and pride that we carry. And when we think of God's justice, we often envision it coming down on other people, (laughs) not us. Not ourselves, we're not that bad. But God is here talking to Israel, people in Jerusalem who are living in the same place as the temple is built. He's talking to his covenant people who think they are safe in the city of Jerusalem with the temple of Yahweh and prophets around them saying, not Isaiah or Jeremiah, but other prophets are saying, hey, don't worry, this is Yahweh's city. It's stronger and he will protect his temple. You don't really even have to do anything. God's just gonna, he's gonna rescue us and it's all gonna be great. Don't worry about it. Except God had told guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, don't listen to those guys. because the key thing that was happening here was that they were so proud of being God's people that they didn't think God would ever judge them. C.S. Lewis stated, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so God's will and God's purposes are a reflection of his character and he will be vindicated as he judges iniquity because he has to judge iniquity. God established moral standards for his people revealed in his word and for him to be God, to be the Lord. It means he must uphold these standards. His standards reflect his character. Therefore, upholding his standards, enforcing his law, judging iniquity, vindicates his character, reveals the seriousness of holiness, and brings his people to a place of either repentance or destruction. God reveals his holy character as he judges iniquity. And that should lead us to humility in his holy presence and also the praise of his holy character. The Lord will be praised for judging iniquity. Turn over a few pages to chapter 25, first five verses. Isaiah is saying, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap of uh, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless will be put down. Look at that first verse again. Oh Lord, you are are my God. I will exalt you and I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things and the rest of it is all destruction. It's all God fulfilling his justice and judging iniquity. And out of this, Isaiah offers up praise. How often do our worship songs celebrate the justice and the judgment and the severity of God? That Does praise rise in our heart when we experience the correction and the discipline of God? Personally, or just when somebody else gets it? Now, I wonder sometimes how shallow our worship has become because we only celebrate what we perceive as God's goodness, which often means blessings of health and stability and peace and freedom to do what we want. Is our praise really robust, loud, and heartfelt when we encounter illness and confusion and strife and chaos and suffering? Is our praise based really on who God is in His totality, both in His kindness and His severity? Or are we very one-sided in this? Listen to Isaiah 25, 1 and 2 again slowly. For you have done wonderful things, formed of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap, a fortified city, a ruin. Now he's talking about the the, the cities that have, have come against God's people, but this also happens to God's city itself. It's leveled the temple destroyed and the people carried off into exile. And that happens because God is faithful. Now, sometimes we don't think that the, the, the discipline of God is his faithfulness, but it is. God said in his word, if, if, if you walk away from me, if you choose to define life for yourself and, and, have, and right and wrong for yourself, then the justice is going to fall. Because I will be faithful to my covenant, which is a reflection of my holy character. And God said that those whom he raised up to exact his justice upon the people will also be held to account for their deeds against his people. That's what has taken place here in Isaiah 25. So why should God's just judgment cause us to praise him? I think God's justice reminds us of who we are and puts us in our place. We are not sovereign over our lives the lives of others. God declared to Moses that his character was mercy and patience and covenant loyalty and faithfulness that abounds in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and the transgression of sin, but also bringing justice against the guilty and holding them accountable. Exodus 34, 6-7. We don't get to pick and choose the characteristics of God that are praiseworthy. He is worthy of praise because of who he is and his acts of justice, humble the proud and exalt the lowly. The gospel project makes this point about God's justice here. God's justice is against the oppressor, but it is also for the poor and the oppressed. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, verse three. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. God's justice is the great leveler. The proud are humbled, the humbled are exalted. Those who trust in fortified cities and human effort to manage life on our terms experience ruin for their choice, while the ruined And the humble experience the stronghold, the safety, the shelter, and the shade that the Lord provides in His loving justice. Ultimately, the purpose of God's justice is His mercy. Third thing, the Lord will be merciful after judging iniquity. Sin never has the last word. Verse 18 to 22. Chapter 30. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But you shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images you will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, Be gone. The Lord shows mercy. Still so that first verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Throughout the prophets, writings, all of them, God's justice and judgment are unavoidable for a people bent on doing life their own way and ignoring God. But that's never the end of the story. In every case, there is hope. Hope and the expectation that God is working in and through his justice and his judgment to build and restore and return to his people. It is sometimes said the wrath of God against sin is fundamental to his nature and his character. But sin deserves eternal punishment, but our just God waits to show mercy. The Lord is not eager to condemn, but he is patient to save. What if sin didn't exist? Was God a God of wrath before the fall? If if the cause of his wrath and his anger and his justice was removed, would wrath still be part of who God is? Interesting question. What if sin didn't exist? Uh, Tony Lane in the Lexham Survey of Theology says says suggests this: wrath is not an eternal attribute of God in the manner of love and holiness. It is his reaction in time to the phenomenon of sin. Also. Wrath is not natural to God the way his mercy is. Isaiah 28, 21 calls his wrath a strange work and an alien task. Interesting. And as I mulled this over this week, I thought, you know, we get to the end of the book. <laughs> we get to Revelation 21 and 22 and sin and Satan and death are defeated, they will be no more. So one day God's wrath against sin will cease to exist because sin and Satan and all that goes with it will be removed, erased, and completely gone. New creation. The wrath has to have an object and a reason, a cause. So if the cause of God's wrath, sin is no more, it follows that wrath is a temporary characteristic of our God. In fact, here's the best news. In a very real sense, it's already done. God's love has already overcome his wrath. Through Christ, we now live a new creation life now. Romans 5, 8 and 9, very familiar passage if you've been around the church much listen to the interchange here. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Notice the interchange of wrath and love. God's love for us while we were sinners, while we were enemies, was displayed in his justice as Jesus Christ took on himself the punishment and the justice for our sin nature and our sins. God implemented a complete plan of loving sacrifice so that our rebellion and our sin would not have the last word. God looked on his enemies and move towards them with reconciliation and renewal and forgiveness through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. The great I am who came from the Father full of grace and truth, took on flesh and dwelt among us, and became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God So that we could know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, accomplished by receiving the full weight of God's justice against our iniquity. And He has forever judged iniquity, and now He reaches out to us in mercy. Isaiah 53 But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord is merciful after showing, judging, and dealing with iniquity. So how we to respond to the fact that the Lord judges iniquity? What difference does this make? Because Jesus has provided the means of our forgiveness and righteousness, we live in a full reliance upon him, and then we seek to declare his plan of salvation to the nations. It's so easy to think wrongly about God. The, the Bible corrects our thinking all the time. As we read from page to page, we see the fullness of his entire person. Yes, God is a judge who rightly judges the sins of the world and your sin and mine. But God is also merciful and gracious. And after judging sin and iniquity, he pours out his mercy on his people. God is good to the undeserving. If he weren't, none of us would have a place with him. If we are to worship God rightly, we must see him for who he is. So how will the justice and mercy of God change the way you see yourself? How will you see others? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we deserve God's judgment. Our sins are many and we cannot escape them, but God's mercy is greater than our sin. His mercy is greater than our greatest sin. His mercy swallows up our sin. How is that possible? It's possible because of the cross. Jesus took the punishment we deserve. God did not overlook our sin. Jesus paid for it. On the cross, our sin was placed on Jesus and his mercy came down on us. This truth should melt our hearts and open us up to God in new ways. When we see the wonder and the mercy through faith, we can fall on our knees in grateful worship. Are there sins in your life prohibiting you from gratefully worshiping God? Heed God's call to repentance and turn back to him and look to him. Another side of this is that in this life we're going to be wronged. We will be abandoned. We will be sinned against. What happens after that is that we have two options. We can ensure that those who hurt us pay the full cost. Or we can walk in forgiveness and not hold it against them. Our flesh cries out for justice, and that's right and natural. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can offer forgiveness to those who have harmed us. It won't make what they did okay, But forgiveness doesn't demand restitution. It offers peace. And perhaps our dedication, our declaration of forgiveness might alter the course of our offenders' lives. After all, God's mercy changed ours. So how do we, as God's people, reflect his mercy today? The quote from one of the early church fathers, Gregory the Great, who lived from 540 to 604 BC or A.D. 5, 540, so this is like a good thousand plus years ago, 1,500 years ago. I love this. He has seen our sin. He has seen, our, he has seen us sinning and has borne with it. He who forbade us to sin, before we did it, does not stop, waiting to pardon us, even after we have sinned. The one we have rejected is calling us. We have turned away from him, but he has not turned away. We turn our backs on his face, so to speak, when we reject his words and when we trample his commandments underfoot. But he who sees that we reject him still calls out to us by his commandments and waits for us by his patience, stands behind us and calls us back when we have turned away. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in your holiness, you do not leave our sin and our waywardness unchallenged, unchecked, and unjudged. Like a loving father, you call us back to yourself, but you don't want to be wrathful with us all the time just as a loving father or mother has to discipline their children. That's never an end in and of itself. It's an expression of love and an expression to restore relationship. And so, Lord, when we feel the conviction in our hearts that we're walking in a wrong way when we're feeling shame and guilt. Lord, may we turn to you instead of turning to all the ways that we think we should act and things we should say to fix the situation. Help us not to be like the people of Jerusalem who just saw all the things that they could fix and hopefully they could withstand the coming siege when you called them to look to you instead. Lord, help us in our sinfulness, the things we're struggling with right now, to stop trying to fix it ourselves and turn to you. For only through you can we find hope and healing and restoration and the newness of heart that we really need. Help us to stop running from you Hiding as Adam and Eve tried to hide in the garden. Help us to stop pursuing our ways of dealing with the situation like Cain, who killed his brother because he was upset. Lord, we hide and we fight. Help us to surrender come to you who is faithful and just who has already paid the price for every sin we have ever and ever will commit and just come to you in confession confess your sins one to another so you'll be healed Lord help us to come to a place where we just lay it all out say Lord we have sinned we have walked away from you We've tried to do this our own way. And we need to just come to you. Lord Jesus, who took our sins upon himself, who bore our infirmity and our iniquity on the cross of Calvary, and now offers us his mercy. Because we can never pay that back. We can never make up for our sin. And so, Lord, fill us with humility today. And fill us with worship. In Jesus' name.